Hey, Dr. Brandon. Hey, man. How's it going? Going well. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, nice, nice to meet you. In person, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I know that you're a busy guy. So first of all, thank you for joining me. Uh, I, you're I very really welcome. Appreciate it. Um, so before I start to ask you some questions uh, health-related, um, can you just share with the people listening what your background is in, what your professional training is in? And, uh, yeah, sure thing. Uh, so I um, kind of give you a little bit of background. Uh, I got into the medical field. Well, actually, I'll, I'll kind of tell you the longer story and okay. I'll open it up. Um, but basically, I thought I was always going to go into sports medicine or orthopedic uh, orthopedics. And I went to the University of Texas down in Austin. And uh, through that uh, process, my parents had kept um, had kept encouraging me to look into chiropractic, actually. Um, there, and the reason for the sports, um, the sports med, um, was I grew up playing sports and I'm still, I still play sports, coach my kids' teams and things like that. But anyway, uh, so we, uh, so I went into that thinking that I was thinking maybe sports rehab, but they kept saying, why don't you check out this chiropractic thing? Why don't you check out this chiropractic thing? And, uh, both of my parents have been helped by chiropractors. Uh, my dad's a CPA. Um, and so he had clients that were chiropractors and stuff too. And so that's basically, um, I, I go, okay, I'll listen to it. So, uh, I volunteered over Christmas break at a, one of his clients and I just saw how much he had impacted people's lives. And they had a, um, their particular clinic at that time was actually quite, uh, quite unique. This was late nineties. Um, they, they had chiropractic and physical therapy in one clinic. And cool. so again, it was around Christmas time. And uh, people were, you know, above and beyond what they were paying. They were bringing in cookies and cakes. And one guy brought in, I remember, venison sausage and stuff. So I was like, man, that's that's pretty cool um, how they're impacting people's lives. So next summer, fast forward, I actually uh, worked in the clinic. I worked on the rehab uh, side of the clinic and got to experience it more uh, firsthand. And then from that point on, I decided, you know what, this is this is what I'm going to do. So I went the, um, I ended up um changing, changing things up, going to uh, chiropractic college and graduating um, from there. So that's, Very that's cool. probably not what we're going to talk about. It's definitely not chiropractic, but that's, that kind of got me started on my uh, journey, I guess you would say. And so I went into practice um, through chiropractic school. We actually get a decent amount of classes on nutrition. Um, I'll be frank, what I do and what I help patients with now uh, is definitely not what I learned in, in <laughs> practice or in school. Uh, they do more, I'll call it the traditional, uh, nutritional, uh, le uh, lessons is what we get in classes. And, um, but with that being said, I kind of had a little bit of a background. Um, and then how I kind of went down the nutritional, uh, path is number one from patients. Number two, um, is my video messing up? Oops, sorry about that. It was messing up. Anyway, um, number one is through patients. Number two, uh, was my own personal, uh, kind of health journey, if you will. I, uh, you know, being a chiropractor, we see a lot of low back pain patients and, you know, we can only help soap, you know, patients so much if they're 300 pounds, 350 pounds, right. you know, something like that, you're still going to have pressure upon the joints and the disc. And so, um, basically it came to a point where we needed to offer something, uh, for them. So we offered this weight loss program. It was a medically based weight loss program. It was actually a program that they use prior to people going into um, gastric bypass or sleeve and things of that nature. And so it's a lot of, it's high protein. It's a lot of shake-based protein bars, prepackaged meals, things like that. 
it worked phenomenally well. Um, it did have results. Um, it just was not, it was absolutely not sustainable. Right. Um, you were, you're basically tricking the body. And then as soon as people stop using the, um, the, the, you know, the prepackaged meals, the protein shakes, all that type of stuff, the weight just came back on because they never changed any, any lifestyle right. habits. They never really had a foundation, um, to, uh, to build upon. And I, I remember distinctly, we had a, we had a patient who, uh, we had a little contest. And so the, the, it was a contest, I think like at the beginning of the year or something like that. And, um, anyway, we, we said, okay, whoever loses to make it fair, whoever loses the biggest percentage of weight, um, over the next 12 uh, weeks, um, they're going to win. I think we had like 500 bucks or something. I can't remember what it was. It was something, um, it was a decent amount, but it was, it was relatively nominal. So this one lady wins it. Um, she lost like close to 60 pounds, um, wow. in that 12 week time period. So she did phenomenally well. Fast forward another two, three months, I happened to pass her, uh, in the store, in the grocery store. And she kind of, uh, saw me, but uh, didn't, you know, wanted to avoid me, but I said, hello. And I hope my face didn't say it, but I was like, you know, kind of, oh my goodness, what happened? She basically put all the weight back on. So she dropped all this weight. And again, we never really addressed, I'll call it the lifestyle and, and really educating them. So we're just like, just do this. And um, anyway, the weight all came back on. And so I left out of that store um, uh, kind of defeated <laughs> and I scrapped that program pretty much immediately um, at that point in time. And then I, I said, you know, I'm done with kind of the nutritional stuff because it did take more time and all. And um, anyway, this is a really long answer, I guess. It, no, I love it. I love it. it too. Uh, but anyway, so uh, fast forward um, a little bit uh, past that, a couple more years past that. Uh, I started having kind of some of my own gut stuff, digestive stuff. Uh, traditional conventional medicine wasn't really addressing it. Uh, my energy was quite, you know, quite low and stuff. I was in a, I'm, you know, I'm still in a busy practice. I still see patients and stuff. Um, but like I'd get home at the end of the day and I remember my wife would re be reading to our kids, you know, bedtime story and it's like 830 at night. And I'm just like, you know, I'm like dozing off and I'm like, and she's like, why do you always fall asleep? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm exhausted. Like I'm tired. Like I was busy, but not so busy that I should be that exhausted at the, at the end of the day. Right. And as I, you know, kind of learned more and more about um, nutrition and stuff and what was going on with my own um, body, then it, you know, the light bulbs uh, a couple of years later really started, uh, started coming on. So how, so, so diving into that a little bit more, there's a guy named Dr. Mark Hyman. He's an MD. I don't know if anybody's heard of him, but he used to actually be um, the president for the uh, the Functional Medicine uh, Institute or International. I forgot what the exact like title is, but he's been that forever. He's really well known, uh, international speaker, best selling multiple best selling books. But somebody told me about one of his books, his early books about brain um, and about the brain function and using functional medicine. And I honestly had never even heard of functional medicine at that point in time. And uh, so I read the book and I'm like. Now this makes sense. And I combined it with some other stuff that I'd learned from a guy named Dr. Uh, James Chestnut, who also lectures all over the world and stuff. Um, and he always talked about eat well, move well, think well. That was kind of his three pillars of health. And he was really um, more, I'll call real whole food based, um, just some key supplements, not supplementing for everything underneath right. the sun. 
um, but just some key um, foundational supplements. So I kind of combined those two and I was like, okay, I personally need to get some help to get this, you know, the, all this gut stuff going um, correctly in the right direction. So I went, I live in Texas. I live in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so I went online. This was probably about 2011 or 10, something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, so I go online to Google and I'm like functional medicine uh, uh, practitioners in Dallas Fort Worth. And it was like, none. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, crap, that doesn't work. And you know, they're all like, I was saying, so I look a little further and in Austin, uh, there was a, there was a doctor down in Austin. So I do research and stuff. And so her name is Dr. Amy Myers. And she's since been on like the doctor show and Dr. Oz and all this other stuff. But literally, I think she had only been in practice when I went and saw her uh, down in Austin and she was in an old converted house. She's in a big clinic and stuff now and has best-selling books and all this other stuff. Um, but anyway, when I first met with her, uh, she, she was like maybe a year in practice, if even that, um, she was a ER trained doc. And then um, she had her own personal thing with her thyroid and, and whatnot. And that kind of led her down that path. So anyway, so I went to her, consulted with her, met with her. She gave me this, you know, this plan and stuff and a number of supplements and, and whatnot. And basically, I started uh, applying, applying it and uh, my health started turning, start turning around. So then, um, so anyway, so <laughs> that led me into practice. I went, hmm. Maybe we could do something similar to this. So what I started doing is I started writing nutritional plans um, for patients for different conditions. I didn't do it with all the patients. It was still primarily chiropractic and rehab that I was, you know, seeing patients with. Right. But that kind of, you know, and I'd help patients and and put together these plans and so forth and so on. We're seeing great results uh, with it. And then uh, a buddy of mine had developed this uh, genetic weight loss program, and um, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I saw a friend of mine lose like 50 some odd uh, pounds. Uh, he had lived up in Minnesota and he'd always been overweight. And I thought he had gastric bypass or something like that. And so I reached out to him and I talked to him. His name's Adam. Anyway, and I said, uh, I said, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm doing this genetic weight loss program. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, Dr. Walton's the one that started it, who I'd known for at that point in time for almost 10 years. I was like, really? So I picked his brain. And basically what he had did is he had developed this weight loss program um, where it used all real food and so a couple key supplements. And then we uh, tested uh, genetic, uh, different genetic markers, about 28 different genetic markers that we use to this day um, that are for metabolism uh, and weight loss specifically. And basically put people through this program and they did incredibly well. So I brought that into my practice. That's probably been eight, nine years ago now, something like that. And we've been doing that with patients and it's phenomenal. Um, average, like when we looked statistically, our patients uh, lose about 22.4 pounds in the in the first six weeks alone. So it's wow. a pretty good amount of weight loss um, that people uh, lose. Obviously, we have some that are, you know, 35 or 40 and we have some that are, you know, 15 or 14 or something like that, just depending on what all they got going on in their health history. So I became a clinical consultant for clinics all across the country uh, for that. I've done that role for about the last five or six years, something like that. And we even tweaked it from some of the other things I learned. We tweaked the program to even be that much uh, better results. And then I, uh, two years ago, uh, actually two years ago, just uh, this past month of, of February, we're recording this on uh, March the 3rd. Um, but anyway, uh, two, uh, February, two years ago, I joined a group called Curis Functional Health. I partnered uh, with them. And so what uh, Curis Clinics do is they combine chiropractic, functional nutrition, and mental health. Um, so we do wow. all of that underneath one uh, roof. Uh, I was 
early, you know, relatively early on. I think we were about the 14th clinic or something like that. Um, we're now up to over 50 clinics in about seven different states. So we've had some massive growth, but it's really the re what I really like about the model is that it, it basically addresses a lot of the root underlying causes that people right. are dealing with, with so many health uh, issues. Is it the end all be all to everything is a cure all for everything? No, but I definitely think it has a massive uh, place in the healthcare field, in the marketplace. And I think that's also why we see such um, dramatic growth. And so I was asked about a little over a year ago. Um, to head up the nutritional division for uh, Curious Clinics. So I'm the director of nutrition for all the Curious Clinics uh, nationwide. So anyway, that's, that's awesome. a that's a, a long version of, uh, let's see, 20 years and a recap right there. So. That's awesome. Uh, really cool story and relatable to a lot of people that I've talked with that are in similar positions. Um, they've had their own health journey and just following curiosity. So uh that that's really cool to see your your whole um growth throughout that time that that's that's awesome and and um how effective you've been so what, what you you caught my attention with the combination between chiropractic mental health and nutrition do you think yeah. that the trio there is inseparable and that's why it, it works well using all three or focusing on those mm -hmm. three I think now not every patient that comes through the door does all three. Some just do one, some do two, you know, depending on what they're going on. But if you, if you really think at it, uh, think about it. So as a mentor that I mentioned earlier, when I was telling you my story, Dr. James Chestnut, who's out of Canada, um, he talked about eat well, move well, think well, well in the clinic, we had move well. I mean, we had chiropractic physical therapy. And, and even when you combine those two, like they get so much more phenomenal results than if you just do just physical therapy or just chiropractic, um, because you're addressing, if you look at like spinal um, joints, if you look at shoulders, knees, I mean, we treat a lot of different things outside the spine, obviously spine is primarily, but if you look at any joint in the body, um, you have to have two things. You have to have proper mobility, and you also have to have to have, to have proper stability simultaneously. So when you combine the chiropractic and the physical therapy, you're you're working on mobility and you're working on si uh, uh, stability simultaneously, and so we've seen you know phenomenal results with that uh, in the clinic. And every research paper that compares medical, you know, conventional medical painkillers, muscle relaxers, anti-inflammatories, that type of stuff, uh, compare chiropractic, physical therapy, or you compare ch chiropractic and physical therapy together. Every time, hands down chiropractic and physical therapy uh, uh, win. So for like the movement aspect of it, of move well, that does phenomenal. With the weight loss uh, program that we had, I was with um, eat, you know, the eat well component, uh, if you will, that, that pillar, we were addressing that and we were having awesome results um, uh, with it. And then the only thing I was really missing was the think well. And so it's the, the mental component of it. And so that's where the, the mental health and the counseling and stuff comes in. So, yeah, I think you, you tackle those three things. Yeah. You're, I mean, there's very few things outside, outside that you're addressing all those that are still going. Yes. There's of course there's like genetic diseases and things like that. And there's just some circumstances that um, obviously need, uh, you know, a conventional medical care and stuff like that. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, oblivious to that. It's right. definitely a, a, a needed service, but so many of our healthcare stuff can be addressed by those three um, things. And that's why we're seeing phenomenal results in the clinic. That's awesome. 
So now, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that the patients you work with face on on a routine basis? Is it the sustainability over time? Is it uh, consistency? Uh, from the nutritional standpoint, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. From the nutritional you know, standpoint, you know what's interesting? Um, I just had this conversation with several patients uh, actually this week. Is um, as we take them through this program. Um, so what we do is mo mo a lot of people come. I'm going to talk to the weight loss um, program. I won't even go into functional medicine yet, which we okay. do those. We do that in the clinics as well. Um, but on the weight loss specifically when we take patients through the program, so most people when they're losing or when they're looking to lose weight, your body can essentially burn two types of fuels. All right. So it can burn glucose or it can burn fat as its primary fuel source. And so when somebody is metabolically unhealthy, um, they have weight gain, they got all the stuff that, you know, it's associated with metabolic um, syndrome, you know, and I can go on about that, but basically they're over here in the primary glucose burner category. Okay. And what we got to do is we got to take them through this process where in as quickly as possible and as healthy as possible, we flip them over metabolically where they're burning fat as their primary fuel source. Will they still burn glucose some? Yes, they will. But their primary fuel source is fat. And so if we look at that, when you're burning fat as your primary fuel source, metabolically speaking, you're much better off. Your body's working way more efficiently. You feel better. Your energy goes up, all this other type of stuff. And so then we um, get, once we get their genetic report um, back um, uh, from the lab, now we can hone in exactly what their body needs based off of their uh, genetic makeup. And then we can really show them, okay, here's what you need to do to sustain it. Do you have to be perfect the rest of your life? No, I don't expect anybody to be like 100% perfect. Should they follow it? You know, and this is what I tell every patient. Should you follow it 95% of the time? Yeah, that, I would encourage you to do that. You're going to have, you know, go out with dinner, you know, with friends or something. Right. Like that, and you're not going to be able to be perfect, right? You're going to go on vacations. You're going to have anniversaries. You're going to have birthdays. Like, okay, live life a little bit, right? But the majority of time on kind of your daily habits, you should be following it. And so anyway, here's the conversation that I had um, with a couple of people this last week is they'll they'll kind of cheat or they'll get off um, track for wh whichever reason. And they, they tell me over and over again, I just kind of feel like, ugh, I kind of feel crappy. Man, my energy goes down. I, I slept, um, I don't know why, why my camera keeps messing up, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just feel crappy. I don't sleep well. I, my, I'm just not as, you know, sharp mentally. And um, they're like, it's not even kind of worth it. So I just like going back to eating healthier. So what, it, what, what I saw from like the program before, it was more of a willpower to lose weight. And if I just mm. do this, I can lose weight. And what we take them through this process and they, and we, there's a lot of education that goes along to it is now it becomes more of a, it's a choice. It's like, I don't want to eat like that because I feel like crap. Like it's not worth living that way. I'd rather feel more energetic, be trim, sleep well, you know, all that other type of stuff. So, um, so this, the stickability, if you will, um, is much more effective with what we do now. I, you know, uh, it's funny that you say that because I've experienced that myself, even, um, in December, uh, I, I was cutting weight for a jujitsu competition and mm -hmm. I started eight weeks out and, um, I normally, or for, for a couple of years now, I was walking around that, I don't know, 180 to 185, but I wanted yeah. to enter the 170 pound division. So I took about seven weeks or so to cut that 12 to 15 pounds. Yeah. Um, and, and I did it in a sustainable way. And since then I've kind of stayed around the 170 to 173, 
But after eating or after dialing in my diet even more than what I was before then, um, I felt like when I was eating the things that I typically wouldn't or the less healthy options that I would feel even more impacted than what I would in the past. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what that was if my body just rejected it more because I, I started to eat even cleaner and I was just putting cleaner fuel into my body. But what's what's actually happening there when people feel uh, even more sluggish when when they're eating that stuff compared to not? Yeah, I, that what you just said, I hear all the time. I'll, I'll even tell you, literally, this happened uh, as of Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night. I'll tell you this little story. So starting January 2nd of this year, I was like, OK, 90 days. I'm going to I'm going to really even clean up. So I said, I'm not going to do any any refined sugars, right. no grains, no alcohol, no seed oils. Like I'm just going to be like, I'll, I'll still have some of that stuff like here and there. I don't eat a whole bunch of it, but I was like, I'm not going to do any of that. Um, working out so forth and so on. So from January 2nd, you know, up through, uh, last Sunday, which was now five days ago, six days ago, something like that. I was doing, I was doing that and I could tell a difference in my, in my body and how it was, um, functioning. Not that it was functioning bad before, but I could tell it was just right. like that extra, um, edge. So anyway, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to do a three day, uh, water fast and maybe twice a year, three times a year, I'll do a three day, like water and coffee only fast. And, um, usually when I do it the first day, like I feel a lot of, um, I feel a lot of like a little bit more hunger and stuff. The second day I'm feeling quite a bit. I actually get, I get a dull headache, but I know my body's detoxing and that's why I get some of the headache and stuff. And then the third day, it's kind of like the lights come on and like this yes. burst of energy goes up and mental clarity comes and so forth and so on. So I know it's a, just a way I'll strategically do it a lot of times, like after the holidays and not everybody should do this, by the way, you gotta be a little bit more metabolically like if you're raging, you know, type two diabetic and your A1C is at 8.2, do not do this. <laughs> uh, but anyway, for me and my own personal health, I was, you know, I've, I've been able to do this. But anyway, so I've been eating this like really clean and 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 really, uh, really restrictive. And I did it for. I started Sunday night was my last meal. Monday I was pretty much not hungry at all. I had coffee in the morning and then I had um, water the rest of the day with a little bit of lime juice in it. Mm. Tuesday I was like barely even hungry, like a couple times I had like a little hunger, but pretty much none, no energy drop, no headache, none, nothing. And then on Wednesday, same thing. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to start getting hungry. Nothing. I mean, I was like barely even hungry. I was, it was anyway, it, my point is, is the body has an amazing ability to heal and perform. I was going to say we're meant the right to, environment. And so yeah, we're meant to do that. Yeah, exactly. So what I've just done was that. And I was like, man, that's kind of, kind of interesting. So anyway, that's, I, I, I've, I've experimented with, uh, with extended day fasts more in the last couple of years. Um, uh, someone that I, I met through Twitter, he put it out there one day, you know, just wanting to see if he could build a small community of people that wanted to do it just to share in the experience. And since then I, I started doing seasonal multi-day fasts. I started with, uh, a 48 hour, then 72, then four day. And this most recent one, I hit like four and a half days. And I, right. I could I could relate to that a lot. The only thing that I supplemented with during that time were the the element packets. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're the sodium, magnesium, yeah, uh, potassium, and that definitely helped me just to feel a little bit easier. Um, yeah. So I will uh, say in the in my in the water, I did um, I used a mineral water. 
um, okay. which has, and then I also, uh, uh, one of the times I filled up in the morning, each morning I filled up one of my Yeti cups with just reverse osmosis water. We have a reverse osmosis uh, filter at the house and I added some, uh, just some liquid minerals and stuff to it. So I, I did the same thing. So okay. my electrolytes aren't completely you know, depleted. But, so now is, is the body building, I mean, I might be saying this wrong or this might be the wrong analogy, but is the body building machinery to then be able to use fat more efficiently compared to if you're just like a glucose burner and then you've never really done a fast before. And then if you try to do a fast, it'll be more difficult. It's going to be way more difficult and you're not going to enjoy it at all. <laughs> I right. mean, even when we take patients through, as I was describing that glucose burner, and I'll, I'll come back to answer your question. As I was describing that glucose burner, even when you take them through like the first six weeks of the program, we're really focusing on getting them, um, uh, uh, you know, switched over to burning fat. Those first three days to some people like two weeks, it's not fun at all. And right. we're using food and we're, I mean, we're using protein, vegetables, fruit, healthy fats. I mean, we're, we're having regular food and stuff like that. But, um, and they're getting plenty of nourishment, but their body is so, um, metabolically unsound and their body has so much toxins built up into it that they can really, really feel the effects. They'll feel their energy drop. They'll, you know, sometimes get headaches, things like that. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so somebody, you know, most people that are not metabolically sound to go into a full water fast, they would be absolutely miserable and they would think it's like the worst thing ever. Um, so you got to be a little bit more, I'll call it metabolically flexible um, as, uh, oh man, goodness, uh, Mark, Mark, Sesson, Mark Sesson says, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, um, yeah. But he has a, a Primal Kitchen is his products that he now sells, um, by the way, which I highly promote to um, patients and stuff. Uh, they have really all their salad dressings are avocado oil based. They don't have the soybean oil or canola oil and things like that. They have mayonnaises, um, ketchups, different teriyaki sauces and stuff like that. So they're much healthier condiments um, than you'll find in typical grocery store. But anyway, to go to to answer your question, yes, I think I, if I didn't remember the question exactly, but basically it just says yes, your body is changing and it's it's working so much more effectively. When you're a glucose burner, what happens is you consume something. And it raises up your blood sugar and then your, your insulin raises up because that's what lowers blood sugar if it gets right. too high. And then your especially if you spike up blood sugar, your insulin will spike up and it will drive down blood sugar real fast. And that takes about 90 minutes or so, call it 190 to 120 minutes. So people will eat this high glycemic, uh, what's referred to as a high glycemic, you know, breakfast, um, cereal, milk, orange juice, and banana. There's a prime example that, you know, is a quote healthy uh, breakfast, which it's really not in all actuality, it's a horrible breakfast. So they spike up blood sugar. And then about two hours later, they're like hungry again, their energy has gone down. So what do they do? Two hours later, they grab something else. Usually that's quick. That's probably more, um, uh, carb or sugary oriented or something like that. There's another high glycemic and they, whoosh, they raise that back up again. And then it crashes just about lunchtime. And then they go out and have lunch and they have a it's a vicious circle. on it, but subway sandwich or something like that. They just repeat the process again, over and over again. And when you, when you spike up that blood sugar um, and insulin comes in, your insulin can do one of two things. It can either drive it to muscles or it can drive it and store it as fat. And mm. so if you're a primary glucose burner, you're more what's called insulin resistant as opposed to insulin sensitive. Okay. So like a, a bodybuilder would be very insulin sensitive type two diabetic would be very insulin resistant. Okay. So the further you are on insulin resistance scale, I'm going that way, 
um, then that blood sugar gets stored as fat, fat. for future energy. All right. So you're so every time you spike up those blood sugars and that insulin goes up and you're on this hormonal roller coaster, it's just doing that over and over again. It's why people have food cravings and stuff. They're like, oh, they all it's always the same. I crave sweets or I crave breads. Right. right. Why is I hear the breads all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's biologically because those things convert to to sugar glucose very easily. And so as soon as you feel that dip down in and you have no energy and your brain's not functioning and, and then your body starts releasing these, you know, biochemical pathways of like, man, you got to get something in you. You're hungry. You got these cravings for sweets and breads. Well, that's because those things convert to sugar and they'll give you that high sugar um, output. And now you feel a little bit better, but you, you you're kind of a, it's kind of a catch 22. It's a black hole, right? That people right. leave. It. So we take people and basically break that for lack of a better word and get their body functioning like it's designed and, and should be functioning. So now what are the main foods that you're helping patients uh, focus on or try to um, shift their mindset towards or give a try in order to? Um, so we use proteins. I mean, it's, it's nothing crazy. It's chicken, beef, fish, shrimp, you know, things like that. Eggs. I mean, it's, it's nothing, nothing crazy. Vegetables. We'll stick with lower glycemic vegetables. We do do like tubers and stuff like sweet potatoes and potatoes and turnips and stuff like that. But we're going to focus on more that are that are lower glycemic on the scale. Same thing with fruits. We don't have them eat like bananas. You know, one of the highest glycemic fruits. Grapes are another very high glycemic fruit. That's why wine is made from grapes because right. it produces a high sugar content. That sugar can get converted to higher alcohol content, so forth and so on. So we'll stick with more uh, lower glycemic fruits. Uh, berries, definitely apples, oranges, plums, things of that, things of that nature. Um, grapefruits, that's another one that we'll um, focus, focus on, but those don't create those real big blood sugar spikes. And that's the other thing. Like if you look at, um, apples, okay. For instance, apple, if you, if you juice an apple, that's totally different than an, eating an apple. Right. All right. So literally the sugar content, when you take out all the fiber, a glass of apple juice is almost equivalent to a, a glass of like soft drink, you know, so <laughs> Coke or something like that. Like, and people think, you know, like with the kids meals, like, Oh, fiber, I'm getting apple juice fiber because the, it's healthier. In and it's like hormonally, like it has pretty much the same effect. Um, even if you look at like an apple that's blended up in a smoothie, when you pulverize the fiber, it also gets a higher, um, uh, uh blood sugar spike than just like eating the apple. So wow. anyway, so we always use like whole, Real fruit is what I is what I tell patients, and then the healthy fats are your olive oils, your coconut oils, your um, avocado oils, avocados, ghee, clarified butter, things of things of that nature. And then, what's the span of time that you usually see people start to feel better or start to no longer crave those simple uh, carbs or sugars? Feel, feel better three to 10 days for the large majority of patients. Uh, cravings almost always go away about day 25 to day 35. Wow. <laughs> like, I just, I don't have the cravings for it like I used to. It's like crazy. And I'm like, yep, because we finally have got them. Most people it takes, remember I was talking about the glucose and, and switch them over to fat burning. Mm -hmm. It takes about four to six weeks um, for most people to kind of get in that primary fat burning mode. And which is why we do the first part of our program um, strategically in the first six weeks while we're waiting on the DNA to get back. Um, that's why we do that. So, so within those first four to six weeks, um, there has to be a, a big mental component too, in order to fight those cravings or to, I, I guess, be sure that you're choosing the right foods and maybe, um, you know, not 
making bad decisions when you're shopping or, you know, when you're maybe going yeah. out. Um, yeah, we sure get big so part. with our patients in the clinic, we give them manuals and stuff. And it has all the foods listed out that are both anti-inflammatory and low glycemic. So we give them that list and we say, just stay within that, you know, within that list and just choose what you like off of that list. And then just stay within the guidelines that we give you. So we give them guidelines and we tell them, you know what, we don't say you, you have to eat chicken, right, broccoli, okay. blah, 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 this meal. Like, no, we don't do that. It's like, eat what you like off of this list and just stay within the, you know, the, the amounts of protein and stuff that we give you in the cups of vegetables and all that types, um, all those type things. And then we give them recipes that go along with it. But we, in the clinic, we have the accountability, uh, whether it's our, our nutritionists and stuff, they also follow up. There's some, uh, some visits that they meet with me, but a lot of their follow-up is done with the, uh, the nutritionist and they can text back and forth and things of that nature. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, even in my own, uh, health journey, I, for years, I had a hard time losing weight. I would just yo-yo back and forth. I, I lost, I've said this a couple of times now I've, I've lost 20 to 25 pounds, maybe five or six times in a span mm -hmm. of five years before, um, I, I had to make that mental shift mm -hmm. and fix my relationship with food. And, yeah. uh, that I, I started with intermittent fasting and, um, trying to earn my meals. So making sure that I would get any kind of a workout in or any kind of movement or activity, even if it was just a walk. Yeah. Um, and, and that really helped create some space between me and my cravings for the less desirable food. So anytime I'm trying to think about helping people as a health coach now with specifically losing weight, um, I can't help but to think about that mental component at the very beginning. It's, uh, uh it's certainly a part of it. Um, and that was, also, one of the reasons why uh, there's some people uh, that they really have to dive into the mental component. Every everybody it plays a role, um, but there's some that really need to dive into it, which was another reason why I joined um, the Cures Clinics because I didn't have that ahead of time. And some people need a little bit more professional help. But through the process, um, like when they come into the clinic and stuff, we have um, there's a lot of education that goes along with it. And the other thing I didn't mention is um, they actually come into the clinic periodically, usually about once every 10 days during the initial uh, part of the program. And so we're checking in on them. There's that accountability. We're having the conversations about um, the mental head games and things like that, you know, that, are, that go through right. uh, patient's head and the things that they're um, battling. And then we can help give them other options um, for that. Um, one of the things I found really, really beneficial um, for patients over the years is if you look at like bad habits, let's say, take that, right. If somebody takes a bad habit and they just, you know, go away, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. All right. And I just willpower. I'm going to, I'm going to go through it. That has about a 95% failure rate. All right. <laughs> it's, it's like a winning, it's a losing battle, right? Because you're only going to have willpower so long and your emotions are going to get the best of you. And you're going to be in this weak spot and you're going to go right back to it. Okay. Right. What I have found is that when you have a bad habit, if you replace that bad habit with mm -hmm. a healthier habit, that now has almost the reversal. I don't know if I'm going to say 95% success rate, but I'm probably <laughs> saying closer to like a 90% success rate. Um, you know, it's it's a much, much higher, whatever the number is. It's much, much higher than if you just take the bad habit away. So what we have learned over the years is what are these, there's common things, you know, with patients over and over again, what can we do that is a bad habit that this person's struggling with? And what can we um, give them to still be able to take the action, but do it in a much healthier man manner? And, um, and that's really helped a ton of patients too. They're like, oh, 
I can still do this. I just got to do it this way. And we're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, I can do that. And now it's right. not, that, a that it's just like a, you know, it, it's a choice. That, that, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And like you just said, it's giving the patients the freedom of choice. And uh, a lot of times when they have that freedom of choice, they probably just feel more encouraged to at least give things a try. And then from there, if they're making the right choices, then they'll feel better. And then it's, uh, it helps them. And just they're seeing the weight come off and it's coming right. up. It's not like one pound a week. And it's, I mean, it's like, they're like looking for, they used to hate stepping on the scale every day. Now they're looking yeah, yeah. for step on the scale every day because they're seeing the wins and the, and the successes and stuff show up on the actual scale. So that's also, that's also motivating too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure even for you too, to continue doing what you're doing, seeing yeah. patients uh, feel yeah, like the bigger thing, you know, I know everybody like it's particularly for our weight loss, uh, uh, program that we have in the in the clinic people come for weight loss but there's always something else it's never just the weight right it's there's always something else that the weight is keeping them from doing or achieving or hobby or something like that mm. so really where i get the kick out of it is really seeing their lives transformed so transformed in terms of not only that they're able to do those activities but also the health because i know what that means because i see a wide variety of patients in the clinic that if you're metabolically much more sound, that means you're there for your grandkids, you know, uh, wedding, right? That otherwise you may not make, or you may be in a nursing home, or you may be whatever the case may be. You're now not having knee replacement sur surgery because you've worn out your knees because you've carried an extra 40 pounds for, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, something like that. So I know the, I get the bigger kick out of what they get to do in their life that they weren't able to do um, beforehand and how it literally changes the trajectory of their life. I say adds more years to their life and adds more uh, life to their years. That's awesome. That, that That's a great way to put it too. I'm, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to write that down. After, that's okay. I'll let you, I got some study, so it wasn't my original thought. <laughs> um, so, and uh, recently to, to shift focus slightly into now more sp uh, food specific, um, mm -hmm. there's a big, a lot of controversy around uh, meat consumption and um, its effect on your cholesterol and cholesterol and the relationship to heart disease. And you put out a phenomenal thread that I thought was uh, extremely informative. Um, so I wanted to pick your brain about that a little bit. Um, what is cholesterol's role in heart disease? Is it what we always feared? Is there new information coming out? And um, is that something that you look at when you're working with people? Or do they have to worry about that when they're eating certain foods. Yeah. So I can, I can certainly speak to all that. Okay. <laughs> As you can imagine, I have some thoughts on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if we really go back, so I'll, I'll kind of go back, like how we, let me, let me say this. So you say it's cholesterol, the issue cholesterol is the smoke. All right. When it looks at heart disease and what we're missing and what we have been missing. Um, and the research is now showing this um, over the last decade of, you know, 10 to 15 years is we're not really addressing the fire. So we've been, we've been trying to contain the smoke and address the smoke, uh, but we never have really addressed the root cause. And so if we look at it, um, basically going back to, let's say the early 1900s, okay. Early 1900s, uh, a physician could go their entire career and not see a single case of heart disease or heart attack. They go their entire career and not see a case of wow. type two diabetes. Like it was unheard of. Like now, a the number not, one, right? not seeing a cardiovascular patient or seeing a diabetic patient is like 
I mean, you're going to see one every single day, right? So what has changed so much? Because really, if we look at genetics, genetics don't change. It's estimated 10 to every 20,000 years. So there hasn't been a genetic change. There's been some other type of change, right? So in the, in the 1920s, is when it really kind of first started um, showing up that these uh, middle-aged men were just dying all of a sudden, right? And then it picked up more in the 30s. And then really in the 40s and 50s, like it was happening more and more and more and more. And they're like, what the heck is going on? These people are having these heart attacks or myocardial infarction is the technical term for it. And um, really where it brought things, it was already on the radar, but where it really brought bought, uh, brought it to the you know front of everybody's attention is uh, Eisenhower uh, was in the White House and he had a heart, he had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was 1955, if I remember correctly. And he was out for 10 days. And they're like, okay, we got to do something about it. And uh, basically, there's this prominent scientist. His name is Dr. Uh, Ansel Keys. He came up with the um, the ready-to-eat meals like they used in uh, World War II. And basically, he had this hypothesis um, that uh, uh, it was called the diet health heart, uh, heart health hypothesis. Basically, uh, what it was is that he was saying, okay, because we have started consuming more saturated fats, what that's doing is that's elevating the cholesterol. That cholesterol is placking the arteries. The arteries are being occluded. Now the people, the, the, you know, the body, the heart's not able to get blood supply to its own self and it's, it's not working and the people are dying. Right. So that was it. So, so of course, if that's the problem and he's prominent scientists and everything, um, if that's, if that's the issue, well, what do we got to do? We got to cut back on saturated fats, right? Because these saturated fats, and as they, as they got termed, they're fat, uh, they're clo- you know artery clogging fats, and so everybody started reducing um, saturated fats. American Heart Association, everybody started, you know, different uh, organization, health organization stuff started um, promoting the message because that's legitimately what was thought um, to um, to do it. Well, if we even go back, I think into the I don't remember when it started, but it's been decades. Let's just put it that way. I don't know. I don't think I put an exact date on it. It's definitely been like the last three decades, but the number one killer in America is heart Heart disease. disease. Yeah. Okay. Number two is cancer. Okay. So since the fifties and sixties, we've been having this basically, I'll call it war on, on fat, saturated fats, red meat, so forth and so on. But if we look at the rates at which heart disease um, has taken, it hasn't gone down. In fact, it's, frankly, only gone up since that time. Okay. So we were told for many years, really in the seventies, definitely in the eighties, um, it was low fat, um, less calories, eat healthier grains. So that in 1980, the, uh, the USDA, the food pyramid came out. That was the official one. It was in 1980. And if you've ever seen that, or people have seen that the base of it, of the pyramid is all grains and breads, six to 11 servings a day. All right. That was, that was what was promoted as the base of what your diet should should be. Well, when that happened, and I remember going through school, um, you know, in the 80s, I saw that. Uh, that's what you thought. So, what did all the products start coming out? Started, you know, low fat this, low fat that, so forth and so on. Well, anyway, disease rates for heart cardiovascular disease continue to go up. Okay, so um, so then people, you know, we get there's medications developed, uh, statins, which are cholesterol medications, as most people uh, refer to them. So they would take. Uh, you're basically how they work. They block your liver's production of certain um, cholesterol, LDL cholesterols, uh, and they lower the cholesterol. Well, we really look at that when, when you have somebody that has high cholesterol and you have somebody that had high cholesterol and takes a statin and brings it down to a normal level, those individuals, whether they're taking the statin or not, they have roughly the same mortality rate from mm-hmm. heart disease. 
So wow. what, 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 when I saw yeah. that, I was like, are you kidding me? And it's like, yeah, they basically, it's, mortality rates are very similar. So the statin that the individuals are taking, they have this false hope that they are doing better in there and they're healthier. And it's not, it's not right. There's still the root underlying issue is there. So now fast forward in the, in the more recent uh, years, um, last 10 years, 15 years is we've really been able to dial down. Uh, there's what are called subfractions of, uh, of uh, LDL particles. Um, so there's for explanation, easy explanation, there's big puffy particles, there's medium sized particles, and there's these small dense um, particles. All right. And what we've found out, it's that all LDL is not bad. Okay. It's okay. the small dense LDL particles. Those are the ones that are associated with heart disease. So then that begs the question of why are these particular small dense LDL particles, why are they being produced? Now we go into it. And really why they're being produced is it's the body's adaptive mechanism to chronic inflammation. Wow. And um, it's that chronic inflammation that inside the arteries, it's damaging the walls of the arteries. And so as I explained to patients, imagine if you're in a room, I don't know, an eight by 10 room or something like that. And I punch a hole in the wall, right? That's the damage to the artery. Well, it's, it's going to be kind of unsightly. The body's going to be like, oh, that's not good. Let's go patch that. How can we patch that? Adaptive mechanism produce small dense mm -hmm. LDL particles. So then it goes and patches that. So in the in my example, we patch the hole, you know, we texture it up, so forth and so on, we paint it. It's not that big a deal when it happens once, right? But imagine punching multiple holes every single day and doing that for 10, 15, 20 years. Well, guess what? That eight by 10 room over time, you and I are going to be really close to each other in about a, a one foot by two foot space, right? right? So that's the that's the arteries narrowing down over time. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's it's a slow process that happens over and over and over again. Which is why when all this stuff started happening, it was you know people in their in their fifties and sixties that were dying of heart attacks. Well, now we see even younger and younger and younger people um, uh, passing away of heart attacks, unfortunately, right? So it, the root, the, my point is, is cholesterol. Remember, I said it was the smoke. The right. fire that we really should have been addressing, but we didn't know it wasn't some big conspiracy or anything like that. I don't believe it was just, we didn't know, but it's inflammation, mm. right? So now we have to go, okay, what, what is creating this inflammation and why all of a sudden in like the thirties and forties and definitely by the fifties, why did all this inflammation start occurring? Well, if we look at, there's two main lifestyle factors. All right. And so going back to the genetic component of it, there's a field Beyond genetics, there's a field called epigenetics, okay? So epi means on top of, so in genetics, obviously genes. So on top of your genes, there's essentially these switches. This is the easiest way to explain it. So there's these switches and those switches can turn on or they can remain off, all right? So it's based off of environmental input that tells those, those genes how to express themselves. So good input in, good input out, right? Of a, a genetic expression. Bad input in, bad genetic expression out. All right. So what so what environmental factors we're not talking to just like pollution in the air. So it's how you eat, how you move, how you think, um, what's your stress levels, what's your financial health, what's your relationships, what's your, you know, all that types of spiritual. Um, it's all those different things. And then it's the pollution and what's your water and blah, blah, blah. It's all those things. That's your environment. All right. So what what happened in the 40s and 50s that changed culturally that created all this? Two main things. M increased amounts of uh, consumption of refined sugar and you go back and look at that history of the american sugar industry and so forth and so on it's pretty 
pretty interesting. Let's just put it that way. So consumption of processed sugar went up significantly. Smoking went up significantly. Both wow. have a very direct correlation um, to creating systemic inflammation uh, in the body. And so that inflammation's occurring, 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 occurring. Body's adapting, adapting, adapting. Arteries are closing in, closing in, closing in. And then boom, one day, guy kills over and dies of a heart attack, right? Wow. So what we got to do is we got to address that root underlying cause, i.e. inflammation. So what are some of the most pro-inflammatory things that we can put in our body? It's refined sugars. Number two is seed oils, which we haven't even talked about. <laughs> we'll probably talk about that too. Seed oils, also known in America as vegetable oils. And there's a whole interesting conversation on why those are even called, um, oh, my camera's messed up, why those are even called vegetable oils. Um, the, the reason why they're called vegetable oils is because they sounded healthier. So that's why they started calling vegetable oils. And most of the world are called seed oils. Um, but in America, they're called vegetable oils. But anyway, so I'd say, uh, I'd say refined uh, processed uh, sugars, um, seed oils, and number three is refined uh, grains or processed grains. Mm. Those are those are the three most pro-inflammatory things I would say that people consume. Um, and when you do that, you're creating this inflammatory bomb in the in the body. Metabolically, you're not going to function correctly. You're going to create the uh, uh, the inflammation, and your body's just going to deal with it the best that it can. And the, and the body's just trying to survive at that point. Yeah. So now, so now going back to your question about meat, right? Um, and saturated fats. So if you look at, I've studied farming quite a bit in my second career, I'll have a regenerative ranch. I've, nice. I, many people know that. Um, so anyway, that'll be my, my second career because I think it ultimately comes back down to the farming and doing it in a, not even a sustainable way because what we're doing isn't sustainable. We don't want to sustain it. I want to make it better. So regenerative ranching is, is what I'm going right. to uh, do or regenerative farm. Um, but anyway, uh, when you look at, how the um, how the beef industry is, how farmers get fed is how much how much meat and mass they can put put on those cows, right? So the more mass I can put on the cows, I'm gonna get paid more, right? So so that's when they figured out, hey, if we take them to feedlots and we start feeding them on the feedlots, they can really fatten up quickly, right? Right, and so you have a cow up to a certain um, you know, a certain age before you can do that, where it grows out. And then about the last 12 ish weeks or so, uh, you go to, uh, what's called technically called CAFO contained animal feeding operation, I think is what it stands for, but it's CAFO. And that's where you see the quote cool feedlots and stuff. So that's when they feed them primarily grains, corn, soy, sorghum, wheat byproducts, things like things of that nature. So it's going to be things that just like us as humans, <laughs> fatten us up, it fattens up the cows. Well, if you look at what happens really within a, a, even just a handful of days, you start changing up the fat content and the nutrient profile of the animal. Um, you get significantly less omega, um, omega threes, which are more anti-inflammatory. They regulate inflammation in the body and you get significantly more omega sixes because you're coming from the grains. That's where, uh, the omega sixes wow. come. So they're more pro-inflammatory. So, so now you have, so they were kind of partially right. If you will, that red meat causes heart disease, but it's how we're feeding the cattle, right? Mm -hmm. You can ask any kindergarten, a kindergartner, what should cattle eat every single time? They're going to say grass. <laughs> right. But that's not, they, they feed grass, but they're not finished on grass. They're finished on grains. So that's, that's what happens. So then when we consume that, now we're going to have a little bit more pro-inflammatory response because of that. 
Mm. That makes sense. It does. So, yeah. and which is going to drive up the inflammation in our body. And, and it really, if you look at like omega threes and omega six fatty acids, the, the full name is they're called omega three essential fatty acids. And the reason why they're called essential fatty acids is our bodies. We don't have the en enzyme to convert and make omega threes. So we as humans have to get our, our omega threes from our food. And so okay. salmon or grass fed, grass finished cattle or, you know, wild caught game, you know, things like that, they're going to be high in omega threes. And if you look at human history, what did they consume? Mostly All of this. Yeah. And then my argument to, uh, to, you know, those that if somebody has a, a religious reason or ethical reason, I'm, I'm fine with that. That's okay. But if, if somebody's coming from a health standpoint and they go, yeah, but you know, stay away from meat, meat's bad, vegan, vegetarian, blah, blah, blah. The question that has never been answered by anybody that I ask them, I said, then why do we have these? Right. <laughs> why do we have canine teeth if we're not supposed to consume some amount of meat products? And whether you take an evolutionary standpoint or you take a creationist standpoint, you're going to be tough to, to find an answer there. And nobody's answered that. And I think the reason is, is because uh, does a does a vegetarian and or maybe a vegan um, diet, is it better than the standard American diet called SAD, the SAD diet, standard American right. diet? Is it better than that? Yeah, it's probably better than that. So you're going to see health outcomes when you compare it to the standard American diet. Is it the optimal diet? I don't know that I have found that clinically. That's that's really interesting because, um, I mean, I'm sure you'll still find a ton of doctors today that would suggest that uh, healthier grain, um, no red meat diet if you have high cholesterol. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, like you said, there's- Yeah, and they'd probably say out. eat a whole bunch of whole healthy grains. Is that what you just said? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that that's what a lot of doctors would suggest if you do have high cholesterol and they're trying to help you to reduce that. So, so I guess. So, um, so I'll tell you real quick on that how how yeah. that happened. Okay, so uh, Dr. Harvey Kellogg, ever heard of Kellogg cereal? Yes. Corn flakes. Okay, I won't go into the full history here. I wrote a thread on it. You can find you can find it on Twitter. <laughs> go look through my thing. But uh, but anyway, uh, one of his uh, right hand assistants, I forgot her name, but it's a lady. And um, so he was he was Seventh-day Adventist. If you're familiar with Seventh-day uh, Adventist, um, it's a uh, a lot of them follow a, a vegetarian or not really vegan, but typically more vegetarian um, dietary. So he was, you know, he, he wasn't a big proponent uh, proponent of um, meats and stuff. And so that's the whole story of how cornflakes even came about because they had a it's called a sanatorium where people came from all over the world to that to them to prove their uh health up in Michigan. But anyway, hit one of his right hand assistants, it was a lady, I forgot her name. She was the um she was the the starter of the ADA, the American Dietetics Association or Dietitian Association. So a lot of her, you know, from the from national organizations, that dietary um communication of what was healthy came from that background and from that um foundation and it's been perpetuated mm -hmm. throughout um the years and like i said even when i was in school i got a lot of that same stuff right like whole healthy right. grains watch out for too much fats eat low calorie blah 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 so forth and so on and really if we look at weight loss it's not primarily calorie driven this is probably the most controversial statement that i um say but the research backs it um is it's not really calorie driven their calories play a role of course but it's primarily hormonally driven that's what mm -hmm. weight loss is and it's based off of the input of the food that you consume remember we talked about genetic expression how that how your genetics express certain hormones to either 
gain and retain weight or lose and, and burn burn fat. So, and, um, so that, anyway, that's, so it, that, it comes that, back that's to a big, uh, I was gonna say that that's a big point too, because a lot of people are fixated on needing to hit a certain amount of calories. But what you're saying is it really comes down to more of the quality of the food than the than the quantity of the calories that you're consuming when you're looking to get your body to function properly. 100%. Think of, think of it, okay, this isn't a trick question, right? If I had somebody eating 1,800 calories a day of donuts, and I had somebody eating 1,800 calories of uh, good quality meat, vegetables, fruit, healthy fats, who's going to gain weight? The donuts, donuts all day long, even if they go down to 1500 calories, believe it or not, they're nobody's going to do this, right? They're going to feel like miserable, but they're going to go, they're going to actually gain weight or retain, keep the weight on, even though they're at like 1500 calories and they could be active and stuff like that. And it's how it fires off. Like we talked about before, it drives such a massive blood sugar spike. And then you get that massive insulin spike and that insulin takes it and it's going to go store it as fat. And so, you know, I, I, I wrote a thread on it and somebody like, yeah, I obviously you don't know the law of thermodynamics. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I don't know the law of thermodynamics, <laughs> but I do have thousands of patients that I've, uh, you know, actually had this in firsthand experience and clinical experience. And oh my gosh, they get massive results. And guess what? All yeah. of them have practically done before they come to me reduce calories and burn more calories. They've done the ca calorie deficit model and they're still frustrated and they're stuck and they're like, am I going to always be heavy? I'm like, no, we get, we got you. We're going to, we're going to get you helped out. So, yeah, so we, we could do so much to have, to have our bodies better serve us and just optimize or, or function uh, at a more optimal level uh, just with lifestyle choices. Yep. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And I have found not, obviously I focus a lot on, you know, the dietary aspect, but there's other things there's sleep. Of course, that's huge. Um, if you're not getting sufficient amounts of sleep, you're releasing all kinds of stress hormones that negatively affects your metabolism. There's obviously exercise and movement. There's relationships, you know, all those things we talked about before, right. but what I have found, um, in terms of clinically speaking, the biggest epigenetic influence on how your body performs, I would say is diet. Mm. And I, and I've regularly told patients, you can't out exercise a crappy diet. You can't out supplement a crappy diet. You can't out medicate a crappy diet. That is the foundation. If you don't have that right, good luck with all this other stuff. All right. Cause you're just going to be beating your head up against the wall. You're going to be pounding on the treadmill. You're going to be taking a bajillion supplements, wasting a decent amount of money, and you're going to still be stuck and frustrated. And you can take all the medications to, you know, address the symptoms and stuff like that. But it's the foundation. Um, the diet is that is the foundation I found. Mm. Uh, Dr. Brandon, I I really appreciate you uh, spending this this hour with me. I don't I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know that you're a busy guy. I feel like I could ask you questions about this stuff for hours. I got about fifteen more minutes. I planned out for an hour fifteen. So if you okay. ask me a question, I'll be happy to. I'll okay. Be happy to answer. All right. Yeah. Um. One one more thing I just wanted to touch on quickly before we conclude is blood pressure because um managing or high blood pressure is something that a lot of people in my family have. And I know a lot of people that are just managing high blood pressure. Is that something that you also see strongly impacted when people uh, fix their diet as well? Or is that yes. something? In all cases, no, because there's some other reasons of why people have elevated uh, 
blood pressure. But in a large majority of cases, it goes back to our whole discussion of the cardiovascular disease, right? Okay. So think of like a water hose, you know, you're out, you know, summertime spraying a water hose, you put, put your thumb over it, right? Right. To create less of a hole. So you increase the pressure so it shoots, shoots further, right? So right. same concept. When the uh when the arteries are having the placking in there, occluding even just a little bit, you're gonna have an increase in pressure um, of that. So yeah, obviously blood pressure. So then the thought process is okay, take the blood pressure medication to lower that down to normal, uh, normal levels. Well, I guess the question I would say is why is that elevated blood pressure um, happening in the first place? All right. So if it is due to this um, cardiovascular disease and it's the occluding of the arteries, well, that goes back to that whole discussion that we had earlier. Now, the the blood pressure medication you may want to use that in the interim just to be safe, so you don't have a, you know a stroke or anything like that. Like be wise about it, but that's not going to be your long term solution. Your long term solution is going to be address the root underlying cause of what's causing in the first place, and that goes you know like I said that goes back to inflammation. What's the biggest right. influencer on inflammation? It's dietary, right? So that's changing up the diet. And the body has it, like I said, has amazing ability to heal if we give it the right environment. So you give that body the environment long enough, it starts reversing these things. You know, it was thought for the longest time that heart disease was it was non-reversible. Well, it's it's reversible. That's uh, so, so. I mean, that, that gives me a lot of hope um, because I, I'm still learning a ton as I'm on my own health journey. I'm trying to, or I'm starting to realize that you could, or I. I lost a lot of weight, but there's a difference between looking healthier and being uh, metabolically healthy. Um, mm -hmm. So I would be curious myself to just to get a uh, a genetic uh, test or a genetic metabolic test. You said that you do with your yeah. patients. I would be curious just to get that myself, just to see what was going on and um, what what specifically does that measure that measures or it, it gives it's you... specific genotypes. Yeah. So we'll, so you'll we'll see how I'm responding to certain foods after. Mm -hmm. So what the report does, we test those sent off the lab and then literally gives the report back. It's about 51, 52 pages, something like that. And so it breaks down everything, gives all the, the nitty gritty details. But what I love about the report with the patients is that it, it simplifies it too. So it tells them, you know, based off of their genetics, what should what what should be their macros right so what percentage of fats carbs proteins should they be consuming okay. and i don't calculate it so i don't expect anybody else to calculate it every meal so what i like about the report is now it breaks it down into more simple form and it said okay based off of your activity levels are you pretty darn sedentary are you light act actively are you you know medium heavy are you training for a marathon you know what what are you doing in your life and it basically breaks it down and says okay you should have this many ounces of protein per day, this many cups of vegetables a day, this many cups of, you know, fruit, starches, dairy, it goes through all that stuff and it lays it out for the patients. And this is what you should do to um, maximize your body's genetic expression. And guess what happens when they do that? Their body just starts getting healthy, right? And they start losing weight, blood pressure goes down, cholesterol improves, blood sugars go down, A1C goes down, like all that stuff right? Sleep gets better. Energy goes up, all that stuff. And it's just because we're giving the body the right environment to, for it to function and perform as optimally as it, as it can. And then that report even goes into exercise. It'll tell what's the best type of exercise. So wow. maybe, maybe, you know, cranking away on the treadmill for an hour, isn't the best thing for you, right? Maybe it's some more vigorous type 
activity that's better for you. But maybe maybe more of a treadmill type thing is better for you. So we can we can figure we can figure that out through the genetic testing and then um, you know narrow that down to the patient. Sorry, my camera's messing up again. I don't know what's going on. So, <laughs> no worries. Uh, so, hey, so all now- the audio people that are listening to this, like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Anyway, like a robot, I'm like shaking and stuff. So anyway, but, uh, but that's what we do. So yeah. Um, yeah, just reach out to me. I'll, I can, we can get it set up because we can mail it. So we actually, Oh, cool. You still do the program and the clinic. So we actually, I, I was like, man, I started doing the cl- the program in the clinic and then I had family members reach out to me and then they would tell people. And so, like I said, I'm in Texas. So I was doing this program. I'd never meet the people I'm doing it like Wisconsin and California and right. North Carolina and Tennessee and Florida and stuff. And, uh, so anyway, so ultimately I, um, more, uh, a handful of months ago, I basically developed where we can now do it all, um, you know, remotely for anybody in the U S I can't do it all across the world and stuff, but we can ship everything to the patients, uh, all across the, all across the world. Uh, so if they're interested in doing that, they can, they can check out the website. <clears throat> it's, right. it's genetic. I guess I should tell the website if somebody wants to uh, check it out. It's called geneticweightlossprogram.com, geneticweightlossprogram.com. Real clever name, I know. But <laughs> it has all the information. They can order it there. Um, and then it gets, gets shipped to them. And then they what we walk through the whole process uh, with them. But just re- if you're looking for just the genetic test, um, reach out to me. I'll be happy to, we'll figure something out. <clears throat> Very cool. Um, and then one, one last question that I was uh, looking to ask you was, um, based on all of your experience and all the patients that you've worked with, um, we, we might have touched on it already, but what's something that you're seeing and your conviction on it is strengthening over time, but that you see mainstream or most people still not uh, being aware of when, when it comes to health and wellness and all that? Uh, I would say I'm going to answer this twofold specifically. I kind of answered part of it as it's related to weight loss is that it's primarily hormonally driven, not calorie driven. Um, that's more and more people are realizing that more and more again. Uh, I would probably say the person that I, that I would say that's probably made the most impact on that is a guy by the name of Dr. Jason Fung, who's an MD up in, um, I believe he's in Toronto. He's in Canada. I think he's out of Toronto area. Um, but he's really been instrumental in kind of getting people, more people on a, I'm calling on a worldwide scale to understand that Dr. Timothy Noakes would be another one, uh, as well. He's out of South Africa. He's an MD too. And he was full on like low carb, low fat, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, pre-diabetic or type two diabetic. He's like, Hmm, this isn't working. I do everything. I'm a runner, blah, blah, blah. And so he kind of really is like, looked at something totally uh, different, a different approach. Um, But I'd say more and more people are cluing into that. Um, And then if we go to there, so now we look at metabolic health um, beyond weight loss, it's tied into so many other things, right? So, um, and things that people wouldn't, I guess, normally associate with, we talked about heart disease. Okay. So that's a, that's a, it's not cholesterol. It's a metabolic dysfunction, right? Um, uh, mental health. Okay. Now, when I say that one, that's kind of controversial. What? Mental health. Blah, 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 blah. It's not saying that people don't need medications. It's not pe- saying that people don't need therapy. Heck, we got therapy. You know, we got clinicians in our clinics all across the country, right? It's not saying that. But if we look at a lot of the root cause, it's metabolic dysfunction. If somebody wants to dive into that, they really, really need to get Dr. Chris Palmer, who's MD um, out of Harvard. So he's kind of smart. He's been there for 25 years. Anyway, <laughs> uh, recently, a couple months ago, he came out with a book called Brain Energy. That book, 
um, uh, does the best laying out the research and the tie to metabolic and mitochondrial dysfunction and mm. how it directly ties into mental health. So if we're talking about a mental health crisis in this country, um, that is something that's totally being over overlooked. Um, and then we can even go into metabolic dysfunction and the tie-ins into cancer. And I'll give the real brief, um, uh, there's several books on, on that. I'm drawing a blank on the on the um, uh, Tripping Over the Truth is a book by Christofferson that talks about that. There's some other books. That's just the one that popped in my head. But anyway, basically, if we look at cancers, um, there's an injury to the cell. The cell doesn't go in its normal metabolic function. It reverts over to this anaerobic. Um, so it's normally should be aerobic. It reverts over to this right. anaerobic function um, as an adaptive mechanism once it's injured. And then if we uh, look at that, how does that get, uh, how does that work? And how does the cancer proliferate? Well, the cancer proliferates by not having oxygen because it's anaerobic, right? And how do, if you've known, like if you understand the fermentation process, it's sugar, right? That feeds it. So wow. then sugar feeds the cells and you got proliferation of the, of the cells. Um, so again, why does that come back to? Now that comes back to like, how can we best, you know, if somebody's going through that, how can they best um, uh, battle that? Uh, uh, Dom D'Agostino, Dr. Dom D'Agostino, oh, yeah. who's a PhD out of Florida, University of Florida. In fact, he has, I can't remember the website off the top of my head, um, but if you know it, you say it, but he has all kinds of research on it. And specifically his, his focus is, uh, keto, like ketogenic diet and, and cancer. And that's kind of where his real niche is. Um, but it talks a lot about that stuff about, you know, the anaerobic state, basically in the ketogenic diet, why it's been so effective is obviously it's high fat, it's low um, carb, low glycemic. And so you're basically starving off um, the cancers for lack of a better word. <clears throat> Dr. Brandon, this was, uh, this was awesome. Uh, you're full of information and um, <laughs> this, this is, this is a great conversation. I, I learned a lot and uh, I've told so many people that before I, or when I go from recording the episode, then uh, just adding the intro and outro song, I'll, uh, I'll end up listening to each episode maybe three three times before I even publish it. Yeah, I learn something new each and every time. Uh, so I know that from this one, I'm gonna be sitting there with my notepad, continuing to take notes because this is um, awesome information, and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. If if people want to get in touch with you, what are some good places for them to reach out to you on? Probably the best at this point in time is Twitter. So my handle okay. at, on Twitter is at Dr. Brandon Petke. So D-R-B-R-A-N-D-O-N. And then my last name is spelled P-E-T-T-K-E. So there's two T's in there. So Dr. Brandon Pe at Dr. Brandon Petke. And then the website, if you want to join, I do a newsletter about once a week where I write on different topics and stuff. So if you want to go there, it's drbrandonpetkey.com. So they can also go there if they wanted more information from like a website standpoint. But those are probably the, that's probably where I share the most uh, information. And I usually, I usually tweet out something on a daily, on a daily basis. So I was going to say, if you're not following Dr. Brandon on Twitter, you should, because uh, his Twitter is um, full of uh, a ton of information touching on all the topics that we talked about today and and much more um dr brandon thank you hey man i appreciate you inviting me on it's been it's been fun